Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 300 CTOs that share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insight into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. And this podcast episode is kindly presented by MongoDB, the successor of the NoSQL movement. It's a very attractive, flexible, and simple database system that can be integrated in no time. They have a developer-first approach and build a system that is fun to use and scale to terabytes or petabytes. You don't have to think too much about your database structure. Just start playing with it and develop it on the go. I tried their new cloud product called MongoDB Atlas and all listeners of this podcast can easily do the same and test it in their favorite cloud, GCP, AWS or Azure. Custom tailored deployment without over-provisioning, sandbox for developers, organized in microservices and clear focus on developer fun and quality. To keep it simple, DevOps with more dev and less ops. Just go to cloud.mongodb.com and use the promo code PODCAST2020 to get started using their database as a service in the cloud. So, welcome to our new show, Two guys with very German accents. Today with me, Johannes Schabach, CTO of Home24. I admire Johannes for years. He's a really cool guy who's able to explain complex tech and business topics at the same time. And he's still wearing Debian hoodies. He co-founded Ladenzeile and sold it to Axel Springer, is CTO of Home24. Home24 is a publicly listed company, so he made it. He founded a company exited a company to a corporate and IPO'd with another one. Wow. Johannes, what do you do at Home24? Wow, first of all, thanks so much, Toby, for that very kind introduction. I, um, I feel a little bit, well... Um, weird um, about all that what you said but thanks so much um, well at Home24 we're trying to build the online destination for home and living in Europe and um, I joined the company indeed shortly before we IPO'd it so but I was not the one who brought the company to that stage of course I was just lucky enough to be there at the right time and um, so what I did at the time was you know taking care of an SAP system that we just installed build up a, or continue to build up a data department, an infrastructure department, and our shopping experience department. And since um, 2019, I also, I'm also responsible for HR. We call that P&O, people and organization internally. And that's uh, great fun because, um, you know, HR and tech is quite an interesting combination. And the way how I look at it is that I try to contribute to building a smart company, which is a smart company consisting of smart people and smart machines. So the smart people part is where I try to help on, you know, learning development, you know, SQL for everybody, um, you know, data analytics, and, you know, the smart machines part is where I try to bring in my machine learning background and a little bit of AI here and there. So yeah, that's that's pretty much what we do. Um. And what is your, your journey as a nerd? I mean, that's like your personal journey to, to computers and everything. 
Yeah, that's a very sad story, actually. I think um, as an entrepreneur, you usually have more fails than successes. Um, and usually, you know, it takes about 10 fails to have one success. And that was no different with me. When I started in 2006, when I finished my diploma thesis at TU Berlin and Shanghai Zhou Tong University, we were trying to sell Chinese slash Japanese fashion online. And we built the best online shop that you could possibly imagine at that time. We used Java server faces, which was the hottest shit at that time. So by the book in, of computer, you know, by, by the book, we built the best web shop, but we had no clue about online marketing such that we, like on the day when we released, it had zero traffic. That was a big fail. And we had to sell off all our stock, um, almost overnight. So in the second attempt was a bit, um, well, we tried to, was, was not even what not really better. So we tried to build a company that was a competitor to Western Union. And so we were trying to build a money transfer business and uh, we built it again by the book with every information security concept built in that you can possibly imagine. But on the day when we went live, we got a call from the financial authorities in Germany called BaFin and they asked us whether we are stupid or something because we were building the perfect tool for money laundry. And that was, you know, just a few hours that we didn't also rolled back everything, put everything offline. And, uh, yeah. And so, you know, that was basically the time when I realized, oh man, maybe I should work with somebody who can actually, who actually knows how stuff works. And I joined Rocket Internet. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's was partly my, well, painful path to nerdism. Um, and, uh, yeah, at Rocket Internet, I was fortunate enough to meet, Robert Meyer, um, together with whom I then found Ladenseiler together. And, uh, yeah, so that was fun. Okay. And thanks a lot. It's already like kind of easy to hear. Um, so we discussed beforehand about interesting topics and we found out that data is like in a way your companion for years. Um, and we decided that data is kind of a very nice topic to, to discuss in general, uh, like from, from, from start to finish. And maybe you continue with your, your journey in data. So what did you start with at Ladenseile and um, where do you stand today? Ladenseile, when we started, the concept was a product search engine. And uh, basically, the idea was that as a customer, you could choose from the assortment of all German online retailers. So if you were looking for red shoes, you would find all the red shoes from Germany, which meant that we had to bring together all the red shoes from all categories from all online shops, which were around 200 at the time. And uh, so basically, that was a pretty big data task. And uh, what we did is that we, you know, not only you know, aggregated and accumulated all that, you know, those data feeds, those product feeds, but we also threw everything away that we knew about it, all the classification, all the categories, the metadata that the online merchants sent along with the product feed and did our own classification, our own image recognition based on the data. But also we also tried to, you know, look into the text, the description of the products in order to um, sort them into our taxonomy such that customers have a coherent, consistent experience when they look for say red shoes and uh, so that's that's basically was one big data task and you know you have to recall there was in 2009 that was really really early on aws and gcp were by far not as powerful as they are today so we had to buy our own hardware and we you know we ran hadoop clusters and you know a lot of map reducing stuff together and that was the hottest shit at the time and you know and people were talking about big data and big data is the new oil um i think that was an economist 
article that came out um, a bit earlier. And um, we were thinking, okay, what you guys are doing is not big data. It's data, but not really big. And we, even with us, with our 120 million products that we were processing each day, we considered ourselves not really big data. Yet, um, you know, that was fun. Um, and uh, so there was a lot of, you know, tracking um, also on the arbitrage business side of, of our product. So basically customers would click on a product, get forwarded or referred to the, um, you know, to the product detail page of the merchant that actually sells the product. And um, this referral uh, we would charge with a cost per click of, I don't know, say 20 cents or so. And um, in order to track that, in order to have the sorting right, in order to understand what a customer is really looking for, it required a lot of tracking, a lot of data, a lot of number crunching, um, you know, to have the proper products in, on the front page, um, to have this, like the thousands of categories sorted according, you know, to, you know, the, uh, to the desire of the customer. That was that was pretty. That was a lot of fun, and that's where you know we. I learned a lot about data crunching. And today, yeah. Well, today, I mean, Home Twenty Four is is an online merchant. So I, you know, went on to one of our best customers at that time, and Home Twenty Four is, you know, Home Twenty Four is basically when the start when. when when I joined Home24, we laid out a data strategy that encompassed to build a very holistic data department. So our idea at the time, and still is, that we can only run a merchant business such as Home24 really, really fully globally optimal when we can solve all optimization problems globally and holistically. Um, you have to keep in mind that every merchant has to take a lot of different decisions every day. What products to buy, in which quantity, at what time, what containers to, you know, to order, to pre-order, to how to fill them ideally and optimally. Um, you know, there are so many things, root optimizations, um, you know, how do you utilize your warehouse? There are so many optimization problems that you need to solve. Um, and only if you have all data available across the entire value chain of, 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 your, of your business, then you can sort them out, solve them. So that's why we said, hey, we have to build one big data warehouse. Uh, we came out of the scenario where we had several smaller silos. And we have to build one big data warehouse in which we bring in everything in a very consistent manner with very well-defined metrics that are really correct that even the finance department can rely on them. Um, and then, you know, we make it available to the business in a structured manner um, so that, you know, we can really solve all these, um, you know, optimization purchasing decisions um, on our daily life. Plus, um, we can build a lot of prediction on it. Um, and so that's that's why we build up a dedicated data department that really has this goal um, still today. And tech-wise, that data warehouse, is it like... Uh a Postgres machine running somewhere or? <laughs> Almost, as a matter of fact, it's a Redshift cluster um, in the end. I mean, as, as every good data warehouse, you basically process and refine your data in stages. So we put everything in a big data lake, which is really just a flat S3 bucket where you know we, we ingress all the data that we get from about 150 data sources um, overnight, partially as events, partially as dumps, partially as snapshots. Um, you know, we have a big SAP um, system and landscape running. So we also need to replicate that. Um, so, and out of that, then we basically refine in stages um, through, you know, partially um, Elastic MapReduce. There's also a lot of stuff happening in Apache Airflow. Um, we're basically refining all the data and, and ultimately it ends up in a big um, Redshift, um, uh, yeah, Redshift schema. 
Okay. Yeah. On top of that, um, we, on top of that, basically for for data analytics, we we use Tableau, um, but a lot of more and more access, and that's really nice. More and more access is direct onto Redshift under given quotas. Um, so people are running their own SQL queries directly. So um, that's something that we appreciate very much. So you empower learning SQL, or as a matter of fact, SQL? we do. So as, as as part of my um, you know learning and development. Um, initiative that um, you know the PO um, colleagues and I are very fond of is a very strong SQL course which we offer to everybody and it's not mandatory yet but we aim to make it mandatory and we believe that we are the only furniture company probably in the world that offers SQL courses for everybody um, because we believe that data is such a fundamental skill To, to master in order to make your job or to make your you know to your purpose your impact bigger um, at any company actually but in particular at Home 24 that we offer that. So, uh, which percentage of your employees then uh, talks SQL? So we are about we are roughly 600 people in Europe. Um, we know that about 60 people went through the course. And there's another, I'd say, 100 people who know SQL because they're engineers. So, yeah, you can do the math, I think. I mean, that's not where we want to be. I think we're, we should be further. Um, that's why we consider it making it mandatory. Um, let's see how that goes out, uh, works out. But, um, yeah. Okay, interesting. And, um, like... Throughout the years, you then saw like different different data problems, and you were quite easy, quite early in, in image classification. Then, which is as of today, like I, I mean, it really grew, right? It's, it's really like available everywhere, but they, back then it wasn't. So, uh, is is your is your learning then that data is really like the holy grail and the new oil, as as uh, someone smart once said, or how do you see it as of today? There are absolutely two sides. Um, to it. So the one, number one, your observation that um, the data processing tools and the tooling landscape became far more mature than 10 years ago. And this is incredible what happened in the last 10 years, not only in AWS, also in GCP. Um, so, you know, things that we built 10 years ago are definitely not necessary to build today because of those wonderful, wonderful capabilities um, and tools that are around today. So, yes, there is a commoditization. But that also makes it just more accessible. The value itself in the data um, is still theirs, right? I mean, ultimately, it's like with AI. The AI algorithms are a commodity. They are open source. They are accessible. What's valuable and what's unique is are your data that you know that you use for training your models. And the same applies to the commoditized um, you know tooling landscape for for data. So for every company, it, it's crucial to understand to predict what their customers are going to buy, when, what the market is going, what the competition is doing, um, how they can optimize, how they can innovate. Um, and these decisions are all based on data. So it's a fundamental skill that every company has to have. And uh, so what, how we look at it also as business angels is that we try to assess what's the maturity, the data savviness of a company and how well do they understand um, to make use of their data and how do they use it? Are they just you know, using it for reporting, for monitoring, that's okay. Um, or are they doing actually more intensive and intelligent analytics on it um, to drive, you know, strategic or tactical questions from it? Or are they even using it for, you know, optimizing 
their business, their product um, in this ever and ever stopping circle of, you know, optimizing your product, attracting more users, then users generate more data and that data then feeds back into optimizing the product where AI is serving as a often for many products as an accelerator because it optimizes your, your you know, your, your operations, your, your decision-making process where you had trees of if and else um, programs in the past, you often see them replaced by AI. So, um, yes, it's a fundamental skill, and um, we see that this journey is long not stopped. So I believe that um, in the next 10 years, we're going to see a similar slope um, when it comes to data processing and data capabilities. Um, do you actually think that web there will be like a war of AI models? So um, I think recently uh, Microsoft has just announced that they are like the official and only uh, license holder of OpenAI's GPT-3, um, like the the um, uh, language processing and and generation uh, model um, and and algorithm. Um, do you think this will be the future that uh, like clouds will will try to try to attack them uh, each other um, by having the better algorithms potentially? It is true that there is this interesting notion that recently, you know, licensing certain models in a, in a commercial environment is, is that's pretty pretty new indeed. But generally, the algorithms, the parameters under which certain models were trained, are public, so that the actual data that's been used to train that model is what's what makes it valuable. Yet you can copy the model over and reapply it on, on your actual classification or, or ranking or, or whatever tasks you want to do with it, um, NLP task, for example. Um, yes, I, don't, I do think that we're going to see a differentiation in different, um, in different areas. So, for example, um, certain platforms will become better in image recognition or in particular maybe face recognition versus others may become better in industrial applications for image processing and image recognition, whereas others will become better in, in NLP, maybe voice recognition, etc. Um, all usually backed by data um, and uh, so by, by, by raw data that they can process. So yes, I, I'm, I'm expecting that going to happen. Um, I'm also going to expect a certain decline in prices so currently it's still quite pricey um, i would expect that this comes down as the infrastructure not only um, software wise but also hardware wise improves um, so that i would expect that um, you know similar to databases or your raw storage today ai tasks will become even less expensive so The life of a CTO as of today is very complex. You have to, uh, if you want to like build up a data strategy, for example, you have to take a lot of decisions uh, that um, start with the right cloud for your tasks, the right uh, tools for your tasks. Um, like if you if you would would start from scratch, where where would you start? What 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 is like your recommendation for CTOs? I would probably start with the question of the why. Um, I would probably try to think along the lines of a data product manager and understand what the data is going to be used for. How is it going to drive value? What decisions are depending on it? Um, and what will be the driving you know, issue that we may see in the accuracy and the consistency of the data? So often... You know, you could look at the PNL, the profit and loss statements, um, and understand how the company's actually been steered by management and, um, you know, make that more accessible, more transparent. 
Um, what we did at Home24 is that we built up a matrix out of the value chain steps, the departments, and on, on one axis and on the other axis, um, the data maturity, so that we in the end had a matrix that depicted how data mature individual parts of the value chain for Home24 are. And then we overlaid that matrix with what we uh, you know what decisions we have to take, um, and what decisions we had to take in the recent past, and what we're going to, you know, have to improve, where we have to optimize. Um, and uh, so, and then we were heading. We, we saw basically the difference in data maturity in our value chain, and basically our ambition level. And that's then where we invested heavily um, in order to bring the data maturity up. And by now, we have you know sorted that out. Um, and uh, yet, we often you know also had to let other parts of the value chain. Um, you know, reside a little bit less tech-savvy and data-savvy, you know, intentionally because you have to focus. Um, but that's probably what I would do if I were to start again. It's, it's really starting with the why. And then at the very end, I would look into, okay, what tool is like if I go from the opportunity space of the why into the solution space of the how, um, then I would consider, okay, what environment is the best one? Is it maybe very rough decisions? Am I hosting it on my own? Or is it in-house? Does where, well, what sort of data am I storing there? How data privacy relevant is it? Um, you know, what sort of protection is necessary? What's the access pattern that we're going to see? Um, then what platform are we on today? Because usually you want to limit complexity in a company. Um, then, you know, it would, it would suggest it would make sense that you stay on the same platform. So if you're on AWS, you you know, have to have good reasons to you know to build everything up on GCP. Um, so that, that's probably then um, what 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 will happen. And once you have made those those decisions, it's from my point of view not so different anymore. If you're on AWS or GCP, you know for most use cases, building a catalog, building different you know having different pipelines, event. Um, you know, processing systems, etc. There, you, you those you find on every platform. Okay, and like from your perspective, also as a business angel, is that something that a lot of companies do do wrong? Um, that they start maybe enter the the solution space quite early and um, like use technology that is potentially not made for their use case. Um, that's a fair question. I think. You know, what I do see in many companies and also partially in my own experience is that the most struggle, the most time is spent on data cleaning. So the actual data operations of understanding the semantics of the data that you ingress, that you then process and transform and load back into your data warehouse to make sure that this is really clean, that everybody has the full understanding of what each single metric means, how it can be aggregated or not aggregated, whether the timestamps are right, the units are right. This is what a lot of work goes into. And um, it's often not so much that the tool itself is the problem or that it's that they haven't thought about how, you know, what problem they're, what, what question they want to answer. It's often really that there's that, People struggle with the operational pain of cleaning data and have it consistently, readily available every day. Um, that's that's what I feel. Also for machine learning, a lot of you know machine learning tasks or a lot of time for each machine learning task is actually getting the right data sampled, labeled, annotated, classified, um, and then in the end, running the actual machine learning algorithm. The training is, is trivial often. So you start with event sourcing then, or 
Um, no, there. I mean, again, there is event sourcing is a is a great tool if if you have the requirement of having your applications being auditable. Um, if you want to, you know, be able to scale out certain parts when you want to be able to replay and full play um, data, it's not necessarily something which I would do per default. Um, it also adds a lot of complexity onto your application because you know the state is not your application is by definition not stateful anymore. Um, so it has a lot of drawbacks, you know, when building an application that's based on a full event-driven architecture. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, you know, we, we recently watched together a Netflix, um, you know, interview where an interesting point has been brought up that you need to understand the different ways of how your data has been used. So is it necessary to have it readily available every second, every minute? Or is it okay to have one week's old data? Um, that makes a huge difference for your data operations. And that also makes a huge difference on your on your architecture, whether it's event-driven or not. Um, and uh, if, if you figure this out, then you can basically budget your you know time and your money on the different you know levels, the different SLAs on your data better and differentiate it and then decide, okay, what part of my data really needs to be real-time where I have to make real-time decisions, for example, in warehousing, if your scanners or your shifts are not performing well, then every minute counts. Whereas if you're making a purchase decision on, say, Black Friday, and that's going to come up in, I don't know, six, seven months, then it doesn't matter so much because you're aggregating over such a long time range usually that, um, you know, it doesn't really matter if you have one week more or less. So um, this is this is important to understand, but that also requires that as a as a data scientist, as a BI guy, you need to understand what how has the data been ultimately been used. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the edge cloud movement. In one of the next podcasts, I will talk to Tyler McMullen, Fastly CTO, about WebAssembly and the edge. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Let's say you have your your stack ready um, and you you want to you want to use it in, in daily operations. So, how can you make smarter decisions using data, and more importantly, how can you make it actionable? I mean, a lot of companies have BI departments, uh, potentially data science departments, and so on. But uh, when it really comes to to closing the the circle. Um, and really using it in your product, um, then um, I, I think a lot of companies are doing a bad job. Um, how, how can this be done better and, and smarter? One pattern that I learned works very well is if you bring tech in general, and this includes data science and BI, as close together with the operational departments that, may, that make use of it, that need that data as, as close as possible. So in the end, you could say that um, you know, every as, as a data department, if you have a se actually a separate data department because you need to build up the infrastructure centrally, which makes sense, that at least the users of it should be in the line, they should be in the function, they should be in the in the company spread out, and you should I don't know build a guild or some sort of community of practice um, or community of, of, of practice. Sorry, <laughs> um, in order to keep 
um, you know, everybody informed about recent developments and inconsistency, et cetera. Um, but the, in order to, you know, to ensure the long-term success of a, you know, of a data warehouse, you really need to be very, as a user, be very close at where the data is needed. And that's something where um, a lot of companies still struggle because they may have dedicated BI teams that, you know, are separate from, you know, the actual operational business. And they, they run, you know, things as, you know, as, as they were an agency internally. Um, this works. And also at Home24, we are using still this model to, for one part of the BI team because um, we had to build up and had to basically educate a lot of, um, you know, other functions in it. But our ultimate goal is actually that we have every single department, every team in the company totally soaking in the data um, have it directly access the cluster, no SQL, know where to find the data that's relevant for them, and uh, basically flow back the feedback on improvements um, you know, to the central teams that are building up the infrastructure. But um, actually, the users, they need to be the ones that are educated. And that's something that's it's not totally easy, but um, that, is, that, is, that is very important, I think. And um, at the moment when everyone's <laughs> enabled to use the data, um, you have to be able to also track who is using it for what, right? I mean, imagine you have a tool where someone can enter a SQL query to export, let's say, X amounts of users every day, X amounts of clients every day into an Excel file and send it to his team. Um, What what is happening with with the data and, and how is it being used is, is really like an important question and um, also topics like the right to be forgotten uh, from a D GDPR perspective. How are there technical tools to make that possible or is that also educational or how do you see that? Yes, that's that's a very great question because on one hand you try to be as open as possible at the same time you need to be as restrictive as possible. Um, everybody knows the principle of least privilege, which is very common in every user access policy. Um, so you need to balance that out. That's right. And uh, fortunately, there are tools. Um, there is this concept of shift left on security, um, where you try to be as close to the source, um, you know, um, to, to, to basically decide on what is visible to whom. Um, yet also there is a lot of trust in the company. And um, it's often a mixture of tooling plus education. Um, so that's that's one thing. And um, the, the second topic that you are touching upon, GDPR, that's, that's certainly a very interesting one because a lot of companies are investing so much money into getting that right. And it's, you know, everybody's spending so many hours on, you know, making sure that they remain compliant and further optimize their, their data protection operations. Um, and one principle that I learned works very well to have a mental concept of, um, information lifetime management. Actually, that's a concept that has been first introduced to us by SAP back in, back in the day. Um, but I really like this idea of thinking each data point in your company has a deprecation date. It's just a question of when it gets deleted. And this decision function of when does it get deleted, this needs to be well-defined. Also, it needs to be well-defined. What data do I actually have? That's also something which, which you know, um, people have to get right. But once you have an asset list and you have it structuredly sorted out, what data you are storing and where, then you can have these deprecation functions on it and um, further first manually delete the data. Um, say, for example, a backup. Very simple. You could say, hey, each backup, which 
is, has the purpose of restoring a live system does not need to be older than a month, right? So you can delete them automatically, no problem. Um, other deprecation functions are possible, whereas, you know, certain parts where you know that the tax authorities require you to store it for several years, then this deprecation function is much older. But other elements on that particular same data point may not be necessary for tax authorities, so the deprecation function would look like slightly different. So that's, that's, that's a great comp um, concept that me as a computer scientist nerd um, found quite intriguing and, and, and reasonable. And that's how we think about it. But that immediately makes you like strive for a system that has events and all events have a lifetime and then at a certain date automatically disappear no matter in which system they are and so on. Um, I think it's also potentially something we will see in the future, right? Um, it's just right now like very manual task uh, to to track that, right? And to keep a catalog of your data and where your data flows and so on, potentially through systems, but uh, also through Excel sheets. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree that we will going to see a shift in architecture, especially in data architecture, to incorporate security by design, even in the architecture. So um, many old systems, I don't know, Oracle or you know, Salesforce, others, They were not built with, you know, GDPR in mind. So and that's why they struggle so much and why it's so hard to get the data out of the system for them. I mean, obviously, they're very resourceful companies. They have sorted it out very quickly. Yet, um, you know, all their customers, again, they also have to, you know, to, 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 to migrate. And that's, that's not easy. So, yes, I'm going, we're going to see different architectures. I'm expecting that all major databases are going to have that feature of deprecation and tombstoning and other parts. Um, what we also see um, is that, um, you know, the use of encryption and hashing is becoming more and more common in order to make sure that you even don't store private data in the first place. You can hash it away and uh, basically make sure that, um, you know, you may not see the actual data, but at least you have it pseudo-anonymized. Um, that's one way or that you store certain very, you know, sensitive data decentrally and you only hand out encryption keys for that data along with that data for decryption. And once a particular data point is not meant to be seen anymore because of, you know, right to be forgotten or, you know, a heightened um, or, you know, the, the customer who owns that data is actually, you know, expressing his or her desire to, to, to you know, to keep that data more secure than, than, than the others, then you may remove that and decryption key so that others can't make use of the data anymore. And it obviously requires a policy that you don't store plain text data anymore. But um, there, there's a lot of ideas coming um, and, you know, being developed at the moment also in the open source community where I would expect that also in commercial tools, we're going to see far more of those patterns been implemented. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, coming from the complexity of data storing um, and, and processing to the complexities of machine learning and AI, I think it's your favorite topic, actually. Um, so... Is everything just easy uh, uh, until you start really doing it? So where, where do we st where do you start, and uh, what would you recommend from the beginning? Um, yeah, when it comes to AI, um, I mean, I, I always love to think of these two spaces: the opportunity space, or some call it the problem space, and the solution space. And um, you know, if you, if you come, if you approach a problem, or if you rather not approach the problem, but um, 
if you rather approach the problem saying, hey, I have this wonderful machine learning guy and let's look for problems that we can solve with it, then it's probably not going to work out. It should rather be the other way around that the problem approaches you where you have a very, very difficult problem to solve and um, you need a way of solving that problem. It's, it's very data-driven and um, you're thinking about, okay, how can we, I don't know, make certain calls more predictable or, you know, there's a lot of examples. For example, at Home24, we have a super accurate forecasting algorithm built on um, Facebook Profit, a time series prediction that was fundamental and instrumental for the recent development of Home24. And um, so this was something where we always knew, okay, forecasting is a huge problem. And what, what's the right, you know, in, in that problem space, what's the right tool in the solution space in order to, you know, build the best, um, you know, demand forecasting that we could possibly imagine. Um, and out of that, there's a lot of trickle down, positive trickle down effects into, I don't know, operations where you say, okay, how many orders are we going to have on that particular week. So what will that mean for our logistics? What will that mean for our warehouse operations? And uh, so there's a lot of benefits that come out of it, but it was more like that the uh, problem approached us. Um, yet, as I said earlier as well, that, you know, there's a lot of data cleaning happening, right? We need to, there's so many metrics that go in there and we try out, it's very hypothesis driven. We try out new, you know, incorporating additional data. For example, during COVID-19, where we're looking into how can we model this extraordinary effect of COVID-19, the people staying at home and, you know, watching more TV yet, but also looking for, you know, new furniture to buy. How can we model that in? Um, we were looking at infection rates and other, you know, possible metrics in order to better model it um, you know, so that our demand for customer remains accurate. Um, so that was very interesting. And, uh, um, but the data cleaning, getting the data right um, was, you know, it's, it's usually what's, what, what takes most of our time. On that, so and I, I see that similarly for other companies and other teams as well. Uh, okay, thanks a lot. Um, and is there anything you can you can do to 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 uh, like a strategy to come up with cleaner data from the start? I guess not, right? I think you just have to incorporate that in your thoughts from the beginning, or um, I mean. Yeah. Having clean data is, is hard work. It requires you not only as a processor, as a consumer of data, um, to process it accurately. This is hard enough. But you also have to make sure that the producer of the data is doing everything to keep it consistent and to make it accurate. And that's often out of your control. right? So the API that you're consuming from may be down or they may change the metric and you may have missed The release notes or so. So um, it's, uh, there is, you know, it, it requires a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of monitoring um, on all the individual levels of your data refinery. Um, it requires something that we learned a lot from is that you build in sanity checks into your data processing pipelines very early on and that you follow the principle of fail early, fail hard. So the moment there is an alert, the moment there is a sanity check, um, you know, raising an alert, then you stop the entire pipeline it's because you cannot guarantee anymore that the data that you're processing is accurate and you rather not want to show incorrect data and by that, you know, diminish the trust in your data. That's, that would be a catastrophe. But you would rather say, hey, guys, I'm sorry, this particular sanity check or business sanity check 
572 raise an alert and we have to investigate now why it um, this sanity check, this trigger went off. So this is rather something which we learn and we have a, a lot of different you know, monitorings and, and insanity checks in there in order to ensure that um, the definition of the data that we ultimately see in our data whales on the very refined level is really what we expect it to be. Um, and that was taking a long time and we had to throw away a lot and rebuild a lot. Um, we, we continue to do so um, in order to make it further accurate. You know, we always want to further increase the resolution of the data, of course, right? Um, but we also, you know, have to make sure that there, that there are no errors in it. So uh, maybe those are the ingredients that I would recommend if, if you build up a data processing pipeline. So that means don't only look at area under curve and rock curves and so on, but um, also look at how the data is actually being used in your system and to which which change in user behavior it leads. Or let's say if users really like such an alert could could mean that um, users don't click anymore on after a certain pred uh, prediction or something like that. Or I, that's a, that's inter it's an it's interesting point that you're raising because indeed. Issues on the site that are not totally obvious, like, I don't know, a certain page type doesn't work anymore, are often raising, are often just been, are often becoming visible just through the data warehouse because all of a sudden you get an aggregated view on your operations. And then you see that a particular part of your business is not expecting as you would, you know, expect it. Um, and that often sometimes it's just because somebody looks at it and that's bad enough. But also because, yeah, so one of these sanity checks goes off. Um, yeah, there's plenty of examples that uh, you probably know from your own past where, um, I don't know, a certain very obscure and exotic functionality on your website that's um, hardly been used all of a sudden sees a lot of usage. And then you wonder, oh, man, what's going on there? And this is quite untypical. Oh, ha have we been hacked? Uh, what's going on? And then it turns out that the Google bot just became a bit smarter and, and was able to follow a link or so. And, and often it's it's false alarms, yes. But uh, nevertheless, you always learn something. And sometimes those learnings are expensive because you were stopping the entire data processing and 800 people are relying on it on the next day. And then you have to you know stand in front of the crowd and say, hey, you know, this particular you know alert went off and we'd rather not continue processing, um, but we're going to be back in four hours. So... Um, this this happens, fortunately, very rarely recently. Um, also, you know, we have a big dashboard where we monitor all the different stages of our refinery and we can, you know, visualize also back to our colleagues and for us in particular, how well we're doing on our own SLAs. So um, that's something which is which, 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 which was very, very helpful because it objectifies the discussion of what's the right SLA for what sort of data. Um, and uh, that was helpful. Okay, last question on that. So um, big dashboards also often have the, the challenge that they are aggregating data so that they are showing your overall conversion rate or something like that. And if your overall conversion rate slowly degrades um, throughout the days and nobody realizes it because like one underlying silo of data um, uh, like or one underlying algorithm is no longer performing that well and like a certain um, certain uh, higher level um, is that a certain lower level I mean um, is, is that something you can you can find out easily is there like uh, I don't know can you detect such anomalies 
easily? I think if, if the, the the example that you're raising, so if the conversion rate would go down gradually, a lot of people at Home24 would notice right away and they would probably have a very good explanation to it. Um, what you're describing is um, that, you know, there's two things to it. Either it's, it's going down gradually and the second element is that you may not be able to explain it properly. Uh, the going down gradually, well, that's something where you, know, you could have alerts. You know, there's a lot of infrastructural monitoring system upstream and others that were also using that raise alert if certain thresholds are undercut. Um, but, um, you know, the not understanding is certainly more of an issue, which um, fortunately, if you understand your metrics well and you can break them down as they are so aggregated and averaging out so many effects that, um, you know, you can break them down and maybe you have done a proper statistical analysis of all the drivers of your, of those metrics. Then you can investigate those individual drivers and see whether there was a land shift in one of those single, you know, contributors to that, to that uh, metric such that you can drill down on that, what happened there, right? And that's usually what, you know, what, what, what everybody does. Um, you know, also at Home24, if, if we want to investigate why a particular, you know, category is developing all of a sudden so nicely, um, then, you know, we always, you know, try to avoid surprises, positive as negative. And then, you know, we, we start analytically drilling down on all the drivers, um, which we understand very well. And then, you know, see, oh, yeah, that's, that's the reason why um, this average or, the, you know, the higher order metric is actually changing. And how do you effectively measure and test your machine learning in the wild? Are you doing A-B tests with, with split groups or how do you, do you effectively do that? One way of testing the accuracy of your machine learning models is usually by split testing or cross-validation. That's what you would do um, anyways. Ideally, you would always extend your training and, and test sample set with um, you know, recent data such that you stay you know, recent on also your model and you retrain your model often enough. Um, that's one way of doing it. The second thing is that you usually, you know, you are improving some some element of your product. For example, you, the sorting, right, is, is often something where a lot of machine learning comes into play or fraud detection. That's something where, you know, we at Home24 um, also, you know, developed our own model and where, you know, we often monitor product KPIs um, and then see whether, you know, certain elements are improving or not. And uh, what we realized is that for many machine learning improved products, it takes a lot of time to gather enough data, even at our volumes of, of users, um, to have, cons you know, statistically sound volumes that you can really derive a decision from it. Um, but usually um, A-B testing works quite well for us still. Um, um, yet... A-B testing, as its limitation, is always that you don't find an innovation through A-B testing. You can really just compare to what the status quo is. Um, but knowing and working under this assumption, you know, for machine learning models, it's, 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 quite, it's quite effective. Johannes, thanks a lot. So we talked a lot about the general way from data to AI, um, and we didn't talk a lot about concrete tools. Do you have something you would recommend to everyone here? Well, in, in terms of data processing, I think what's super helpful is to stay, um, you know, uh, just to stay recent on or to, to stay alert what your platform provider, be it Azure or whatever you're using, um, is, is, is putting out. And usually those tools are really, really, really good. And as they also have internally as a platform provider, similar use cases that they, like you have, um, they often build tools very, very smartly and very, very 
um, well for 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 your use cases as well. So that's that's been an observation that we made. Um, a second tool that recently blew our mind is that how well, for example, Google spreadsheets work for prototyping, especially internal tooling. We used to build internal tools with a small tech stack um, that you know was optimized for speed and flow and just getting stuff out there. And um, since we did, as part of our learning development um, academy, teaching a lot of Google spreadsheet scripting and how you connect sheets and how you can automate processes and connect APIs um, to, you know, non-techies as well, we've seen uh, fireworks of, um, you know, productivity tools emerging out of Google spreadsheets by just connecting Google spreadsheets. And this is um, a fantastic tool that we haven't, anticipated it to be so powerful um and that's something which we realized uh you know early on for example one uh, not so early on and uh, you know one example is that we decided to build our pricing software anew entirely from scratch built on on the new data warehouse and um so we have very very smart people on it and the first version the first front end that we built was just a google spreadsheet and it was a matter of two days so we had the gui up and running because it was a google spreadsheet of course, by now we have replaced it with a proper GUI. But um, you know, the, after two days, having a proper GUI that has user access management, that has a history, um, you know, that has a trace changes functionality, this, this was great. This was exactly what we needed. Then I highly recommend you uh, to look at Airtable. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was about. To, I was. I was expecting you to say that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of competition to, to Google's purchase. <laughs> Again, it's getting more and more. I also like like the 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 whole no code and and low code uh, movement. Yeah. Uh, I really love it. Yeah, and robotic honest. process. Um, uh, you know, um, automatic. Um, ro oh, what's it called RPA? Robotic process automation. I think that's yeah. Um, which is adding an entirely new layer over legacy software and all legacy, um, you know, software providers that run very big installations but are very difficult to upgrade. Um, become a new layer which is far more eff efficient and effective and you know usable uh, thanks to RPA. So this is something also where, where I'm very, very excited about. Okay. So one of my last questions. So you, you seem to be a very, let's say, smart engineering kind of person and uh, like geeky person. Um, do you have a role model or a mentor um, that uh, you're, you're talking regularly to or there are a lot of people that influence me um, probably not those that you would expect um, I learn a lot from you know colleagues I work with at Home24 there's so much I learn about tooling um, I you know, the AWS knowledge that I gathered, which is very limited, unfortunately, but the stuff that I know, I know from them. Um, there's been a lot on work methodology that I incorporated from agile coaches um, at Home24. Um, there's a lot of stuff I learned, you know, from Mark and Brigitte on, um, you know, P&L, financial markets. Um, you know, how does that actually work, running a listed company? That was something I, I wasn't aware of how that works when I joined Home24. This is, this is a great debt that I have to repay at some point. I learned a lot from Philip Kreibum, um, but also back looking back a little bit further, you know, maybe that's also why you're asking that question because it brings me back to my, my early nerd days is that I learned a lot from Christian Weiss. I learned a lot from 
a friend of mine um, who was a lawyer, Lutz Reulicke, you know, basically taught me the thinking of an entrepreneur, actually, ultimately. And uh, there's been a lot of people that somehow had a fundamental impact on my life, which I'm very, very thankful for. And uh, yeah, and I hope at some point I can also pass that knowledge on if if somebody is interested in it and or it, it, it's actually helpful then i would love to but uh, so far it certainly helped me greatly okay thanks a lot um then i have a last surprise for you so i bought this beautiful ye yellow sofa on home 24 and it has a hidden easter egg feature i don't know if you build it in there um it's a time machine and um we now have the chance to travel back at your early days at Ladenseile and you have the chance to whisper something into uh, young johannes ears what would it be i think i could have been a bit more self-assured when I was younger. Um, I think I might have, um, you know, I was a bit too risk averse. Um, I think I could have, you know, done a little bit more on the investment side of things um, where I now realize that often my gut feeling was right, yet I decided otherwise. Um, also often I was wrong, but um, I, I just in recent years, I started to, you know, actually make up my own head on investment decisions um, for, for business angel investments. And so far, it turned out to be okay. Um, this is something I, I learned. Um, I think I never really fully understood the strength that one processes and how to use them and utilize them properly. So I think if I was always trying to hide my enthusiasm about stuff, and it's just took me years to really make it work for me and, and, and use that enthusiasm also to, you know, spark that onto others. And uh, that, that is something I, if I would have had the gut uh, to do it earlier, I should have and might have, should have done it. So that's a very good answer on a very good question. <laughs> so let's agree on that um, and uh, meet meet soon again um, and, and continue potentially with another topic. Um, thanks a lot, Johannes, um, and I hope to see you yeah, soon Yeah, same again. here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fastly and MongoDB. To learn more about the Fastly services and get first-class support, just visit fastly.com slash alphalist. And to try the new cloud product of MongoDB called MongoDB Atlas, just go to cloud.mongodb.com and use the promo code PODCAST2020 to get started for free.